WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another version of City Talk. And this one to me, as many of the shows, very special. Because every now and then, you find an individual that is a great influence on your life and helps you through the rough times. And this gentleman has been doing that for me since 1967. He is a former instructor of mine from Graham Junior College and also a crack engineer at WEEI Radio in Boston and his owns several radio stations. And we're going to talk to him about all that. His name is Dick Walsh. So, Dick, it's great being able to sit down and talk to you and review your whole career. Thank you, Ken. It's uh, probably take about uh, 15 or 20 seconds, so not sure what we'll talk about after that. Oh, <laughs> oh knowing you, I think we can find something. Okay. But, but I know you've always had a great interest in radio. What are your earliest memories of it, and what influenced you to pursue it as a career? Yeah, well, uh, I can... Uh, tie my brother into that directly, Ken. He was uh, 10 years older than I. And uh, after he got back uh, from Korea in the Korean War, he uh, had originally studied, he was going to be a doctor, decided he'd be a doctor. But I'll make this kind of a short story, but it's a true story. Um, When the Korean War began, he had been in the Army one year prior to that. Back then in 1948, you could go in for a year and do your service, and which he did get out of that, and then went to Boston University in pre-med, but got called back in the infantry in 1950 at the onset of the Korean War and was shipped over to Japan in an infantry unit uh, prior to being uh, thrown in literally uh, into uh, into the Korean War at the very beginning. Of course, we totally unprepared for it and so forth and so on. At any rate, he uh, had always... um, had been an excellent, uh, had a great ear and could uh, mimic people. He was a great mimic, um, really, really talented. Uh, never did any radio work or anything professionally, but was very good. He also was in a band and played the drums. Anyway, he was in the barracks about a week or so prior to being shipped out to Korea. And an officer walked out, walked by outside the barracks and listened to him. Bob was joking with a bunch of the guys and doing some different voices. Barry Fitzgerald, uh, an old actor from uh, early days of, uh, in a lot of uh, Irish stuff, who's in The Quiet Man and so forth and so on with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. At any rate, uh, the guy heard it and he got in, came into the barracks and said, uh, who is that? What, what, what was it? What are you playing? And they, everybody pointed to my brother. And to make a long story short, he asked Bob, he said, look, he said, I'm putting together an all GI show to go up to the front or as close to the front as we can get. We can't put Hollywood people into it because they could actually be under fire. These are areas that have just been cleaned out, supposedly. Um, and it's a variety show and I'm looking for an MC and so forth and so on. Anyway, he understood then that Bob um did play the, played the drums so he could play in a band because they had a band as well. It turned out that my brother ended up as the MC of the show. It was called Too Far East, and it played in Korea for about two and a half years with the troops. Now, it kept him alive, I'm sure, 
um, because he was, they would get shot at every now and then, but it was, you know, sniper fire from somebody that might have been left over after they cleaned an area out. When he came back to the States, he had decided that medicine wasn't for him and he was going into radio. And he did. And he got a job at WHIL, uh, an AM station there at, I think, 1410 on the dial at that point. And they were in uh, Medford uh, at the Wellington Circle. And he became the morning man. And he was very successful. He was great at it. He had a lot of characters who visited him on the show, which were his voices of different characters. Um, and uh, that's where Dave, he met Dave Maynard. Dave Maynard was the, was the I think, 10 to 2 jock at that point and uh, several others. So he was there for a number of years. Well, it was while he was there. Again, we were 10 years different. So he was about um, 24, 25 then. I was 14 or 15. And he did the races. They had um, a, a racetrack, a stock car track, uh, and they do racing on the weekends. And he was a stock car racing announcer at the track. He got, you know, a few bucks for that. And there was an engineer guy that would, you know, plug in the equipment. So because these were broadcast on the station. Anyway, I traveled with him a few times, saw the engineer, got chatting with him, was fascinated with the technical side of things and ended up being my brother's engineer. It wasn't that difficult to plug a few wires in and turn a few knobs. And so that's really how I... Uh, first cut my taste, if you will, of what broadcasting was. I was fascinated again with the technical side. And when I was old enough, after I got out of high school, I went to mass radio in Boston. It was a trade school that taught um, radio engineering. And back then you had to step through different levels of um, uh, third class license, second class license, first class telephone, uh, telephony licenses uh, so that you could operate transmitters and so forth and so on. Well, I did that, got my first class license and got my first job uh, at uh, WXHR, which was an FM station at 96.9. It later became um, an easy listening station. The call letters escaped me for the moment. They were located um, on the wharf in Boston, on Commercial Wharf for years, very popular. But back then it was a classical music station when I worked for it. Transmitter was on Zion Mountain and Woburn, Mass, which was a big, big hill. Uh, I loved it. I loved every second of it. And that's really how I, how I get into it. And um, from there, I got an offer of a job. I was there for two or three years, got an offer of a job at WEEI in Boston, was owned by CBS at that point, went to that job, was there for five years, uh, enjoyed it. Um, and um, on the side, I became the engineer at what was then Cambridge School of Broadcasting, but very quickly uh, became a junior college. Um, and Len Libman, radio name Len Lawrence, was a jock at uh, WEEI. He was also teaching at the Cambridge School at that time, and they needed an engineer, somebody to maintain their equipment. He put my name up. Uh, for that. And I went over and was interviewed by the then newly hired dean of the broadcast school. His name was Stan Alton. And uh, that's when they, they they changed to a junior college, became fully accredited, bought a bunch of real estate in Kenmore Square, uh, 632 
Kenmore Square, which is now owned by BU, but it was a former fireman's fund uh, insurance building, which the college bought. They bought the old Kenmore Hotel that became a dorm. They bought the Buckminster Hotel, the one that has the uh, Sitco sign up on the top of it. That became a dorm with some classrooms as well and so forth. So that is how I transitioned. Uh, well, it was a second job at first uh, to, to um, Graham and built their radio studios in 67 and also began teaching, uh, which is when I met you. Um, so that's really how I got into Graham. And we can stop at that point and talk a little bit about that if you want. Oh, absolutely. But you didn't have to have at that time any kind of teaching degree or teaching license. Am I right? You did. The way that worked out, that's interesting. I was not a college graduate and you had to be accredited you, because the college was accredited. So what, what Stan did is he contacted the Massachusetts Board of Higher Education and they have a, or had, I don't know if they still have it, but back then they did, they had a program where if you had sufficient life experience, um, you could be, you could teach a particular syllabus that they would approve. But the way it worked is you went into the classroom and you were audited by three um, professors from different colleges. I rem I've forgotten where they, one was, um, I think from Harvard, and I can't remember where the other two were, were two guys and a woman. And they audited my class as I was teaching what was called Radio 101 at that point um, for three weeks. And then wrote a report as to whether they felt that I was following the syllabus correctly and knew what I was talking about and so forth. And if I did, I was then accredited to teach that course and only that course. And uh, I was accredited. They decided that I was, uh, that I had enough knowledge and so forth and so on and knew what I was doing. And so that's how I was allowed to teach that course at Graham. Um, otherwise, uh, you and I would not have met in the classroom. Oh, what a shame that would have been for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, you worked both jobs. You worked two jobs. Correct. I actually worked three jobs at that point. Uh, I was working full-time at EEI. I was working part-time at Graham, teaching uh, two or three classes a week and also um, being their engineer. So I was building radio studios for them at the time. They had a few, but we were at 632. And what they were going to do, the idea was that uh, if they got their funding and so forth and so on, they were going to turn 632 Beacon Street into the communication center for the junior college. They had other programs as well. They had secretarial programs. They had uh, um, some financial programs. They had a full two-year liberal arts program. They had a bunch of other things going at the time when they transitioned into a full junior college. So it was 19... Oh, the other thing I was doing, by the way, I was also the engineer at Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts, um, doing their stuff. Um, at any rate, in 68, they offered me, this is Graham, offered me a full-time job to become their director of engineering and to build out the communication school from a technical standpoint, to build three 
television studios, color television studios, and 10 radio studios, which I did. I took the job, um, which I'm delighted I did. I left CBS after five years, um, went to Graham full time, and through the summer of 68 into the very early fall, we completed the construction uh, and transformed 632 Beacon Street into a broadcast center with three television studios and 10 radio studios and a radio station, which was a, at that time, and through the, through the full time, a carrier current radio station broadcasting. I think it was at 640 on the AM dial. Didn't broadcast in the ether as an AM or FM station normally did. It broadcast into the buildings using the wiring of the building. So you could listen to the station uh, in your dorm room if you were in the building. Um, and it radiated a very small amount outside, not that much. But um, so we built that as well, WCSB. Uh, uh, I, I, remember, I remember it well. <laughs> yes. Yep. I remember it well. They kept the call letters uh, from the school that uh, Milton Graham had originally founded. He still was the, uh, I don't know if he was the president or president emeritus or whatever, but he was still involved uh, very much so in the college and re and got the funding. We had back then, we were able to do what we did uh, that, that uh, late the summer and, and uh, late summer and then very early fall. We had a quarter of a million dollars, 250,000 bucks to build the three color television studios and the 10 radio studios and the air conditioning required and all the rest of it. We were able to do it. We came in on budget. All right. Let's go back, though, and talk about the, in my opinion, the great plethora of talent that you had to work with and got to work with at WEEI. I mean, I remember names like Len Lawrence, Jim Westover, Jack Lazar, uh, Paul Benzequin, all those guys. And you That's guys right. put... You guys put together a great radio station. Yeah, it was uh, when I first went to EEI, um, it was a music station. Um, and they brought in CBS had decided that the ratings weren't that great. And they were very slowly transitioning. They had transitioned. Um, I think it was WCBS in New York. They were transitioning that into a talk radio format. And they brought in a PD, a program director, whose name escapes me for the moment. It might come back to me as we talk through this a little bit. He was really a genius at talk radio. And he changed the format. That's when they brought in Paul Bensequin and Jim Westover and just a bunch of other, uh, other guys. Great talent. Um, to become was it, talk, talk guys. Was it Don, was it Don Tregesser by any chance? He was the general manager. Tregesser was the general manager, but the program director, what the devil was his name? <laughs> Dom Quinn, Dom Quinn. Oh, I he know that name. First name Quinn, Dom Quinn. Dom was the program director, the genius behind CBS's transformation into a talk radio station. He was really a brilliant guy. And, uh, he is the one that we worked with um, where they brought all this new talent in and uh, turned DEI into a talk radio station. And of course it was wildly successful. Their ratings went through the roof. Um, they became 
the first fully uh, full talk and news station in Boston um, at 590 on the dial. And they it was um, Grant took Richmond, as they say, after that in terms of uh, a real blowout of of uh, ratings in the Boston market as far as the demographic uh, 25 to 54 and uh, even some 18 to 34s were, were in there as well. It was very, very successful. And and they maintained a news format. If I remember correctly, uh, the news would start at either 5 or 5.30, go till 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. Then you would have talk from 10 until 6, and then 6 to 7.30 with a news report. Jim Westover from 7.30 to 11.30, and then something called Music Till Dawn, with Jack Lazar, am I right about that format? Yeah, you are. That that was not the original. It, it, that morphed into it. Um, Westover had a show in the afternoon uh, after Benziquin and so forth and so on. But when it shook out, yes, that's that's what they finally ended up deciding worked best for them, and then it became a news talk station. It was before, but more emphasis on news and so forth and so on. They had a great newsroom. Um, Art, uh, what was Art's last name? The news director. He was very, very talented. Um, Smith, Arthur Art Smith. Smith. Thank you. That's right. Art Smith. Good for you. Um, <laughs> and he ran the news department, did a great job, brought a lot of great news people in. Uh, that's true. Now, Music Till Dawn is an interesting, <clears throat> there's a sidebar story to that as well. Excuse me. <clears throat> it, years before, um, the president of American Airlines, oh, by the way, uh, Music Till Dawn was sponsored exclusively by American Airlines. And when I first went there, that's, I was I, the new guy in town, so to speak. So you got the, the, the crummy shift, which was a night shift and like an overnight shift and so forth and so on. And at that point, Jack Lazar was the, was the announcer. He had a great voice. Uh, but anyway, to, just to, to, to tell you that story, the president of American Airlines several years before was flying with Bill Paley, William Paley, who was the CEO of, they were on the same airplane uh, flying somewhere um, of CBS. Paley was the, was the uh, CEO of CBS. And the president, his last name was Smith, as it turned out. I can't remember his first name at that point. He was saying when he realized who he was sitting with and these two guys were obviously titans of, of their particular industries. Um, he said, you know, he says, I never can get any really nice music at night. I turn on the radio and there's either nothing on or it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. He says, you know, we'd, we'd sponsor something like that. If it was a collection of, you know, easy listening stuff and good, you know, evening music, maybe some occasionally some light classical, but not that much, pretty much popular but lighter stuff, Mancini type music and, you know, Percy Faith and so on and so forth, different, different artists, uh, Sun on and on. Anyway, Paley took him up on, he says, well, you know what? He said, if you would do that, we would, um, we'd put that on our CBS O&Os. That's the owned and operated CBS stations of which they had at that time, maybe a dozen. Uh, I'm not sure but what the number was, but they were big, you know, CBS in New York, KNX in Los Angeles, BBM in Chicago, EEI in Boston, so forth. So that's how American Airlines Music Till Dawn began. 
Um, ah. and it was, yeah, and it was the same format with with the announcers who all had really deep timber, really, really smooth voices, um, kind of the older, older style, uh, very pleasant to listen to. They would pick the music, um, but it was from a general library um, of selections, but they'd pick the ones that they were going to, you know, that they wanted to play. So if you went across the country listening in the evening to these major CBS stations, 50,000 watt clear channel stations, most of them, uh, where DEI was not, but had a great signal. Um, this is the kind of music you would hear. And that, that's what American Airlines Musical Dawn was all about. All right. I got to bring this up because I talk more about you and this particular individual than probably anything else except for going to college. You got a chance to work with one of my heroes and give me one of the greatest thrills of my life. And that was with a gentleman named Phil Rizzuto. How did all that happen? <laughs> okay. Yep. That's you're you're right. I was at EEI, of course, at the time, CBS, and they had a sports show live, a live CBS had a live sports show at five o'clock in the afternoon. It was a 15-minute program. It was out of New York, out of WCBS in New York, 99% of 90% of the time or 80% of the time. Um, and it ended up at this point when I was involved in it being done by Phil Rizzuto. Now, whenever the Yankees would play out of town, he of course followed the team and he would do his show. He was doing the play by play. Um, he would do his program from the CBS O and O owned and operated station in that market. So obviously when the Yankees played the Sox, he'd come to Boston. And at, at when the game was over, or if it was going to be a night game, he'd obviously do it before. He would come to EEIs, to, to our studios, because we were tied in, obviously, directly with the CBS network, as you can imagine. Um, and he would do the program from there. Well, it just so happened that on a number of occasions when he came to Beantown and would do the show, I was the engineer that was on duty at the time. And so I got to meet and to talk with and to and to chat with Phil before he would do the program. And then obviously I was the engineer while he was doing it. And then afterwards get it ready and then put it onto the network and so forth and so on. So I had had you as a student at that point. And um, you of course were a baseball fanatic and you really knew your stuff. And I talked to Phil about you and I said, it would be, a tremendous thing, Phil, if you would let Ken interview you. And he said, I will do it. I'll do better than that. Bring him to Fenway and bring him up in the booth. And you can take the story from there. <laughs> well, that's, that's what we did. And uh, you gave me a, a Stencil Hoffman tape recorder from, right. from WEEI. And you picked me up, drove me to Fenway and uh, met Rizzuto. I can still remember playing the interview for you the next day. Yep. And afterwards, you just sat there and said, kid, if you keep doing interviews like that, you're going to go places. But <laughs> that remains a highlight of my life. And I still get choked up every once in a while when I think about it and, and think about Rizzuto because 
He was one of my great heroes. I can remember sitting there holding a microphone, thinking of all the people that told me I'd never make it in radio. And here I am interviewing a Hall of Fame shortstop and thinking, man, if they could only see me this afternoon. Right. <laughs> so, well, and I, I owe you that more than you'll ever know. Well, thank you. But it, it, was, uh, it was the bigger than life uh, profile of Phil as well. He was a consummate gentleman. Um, obviously an incredible baseball player turned out to be a very, very good announcer, very talented, as you know, uh, play by play guy and color guy play by play. But when he heard the story that I told him, um, he was not reluctant and he said, absolutely. You know, bring him, bring him to the park and, and, uh, you know, do the interview. And I, I knew that you, your knowledge of baseball was tremendous far greater than anything i would ever have and <laughs> the desire for it obviously was was you know you you just bubbled with enthusiasm i saw that you were a very special student um and i it is true and i remember when i heard your interview when you played it for me i was blown away i i absolutely was and i knew in my heart of hearts then if you had the opportunity to continue to do that, you were going to make a career for yourself. There's no doubt about it. Notwithstanding the fact that you were not cited, it didn't make any difference. I mean, your knowledge was there. Your ability to put people at ease while you interview them was there. Uh, and you had a career ahead of you if given the chance. No doubt about it I, in my mind at that point. Well, I appreciate that. And as I say, I... Every once in a while, I listen to an old ball game of Rizzuto's and yeah. uh, it just it just makes me choke up inside that I had the chance to do what I did. And if you hadn't have told me or let it slip that you were a Rizzuto's engineer, <laughs> that never would have happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. I it. Uh, yeah. I can't remember. I remember talking to you and then you said, well, you get so excited about Rizzuto. So that's when I thought, well, when I see this guy the next time. Um, you know, when he's, when he comes to Boston, uh, to, you know, when this, when they, to play the Sox and the Yankees, I'll talk to him. And of course I did. And then, as I say, this is, that all came together. So it was really, uh, you know, that was, I guess your first, your first big interview, but it certainly was not your last. By any yep. <laughs> it was the first one. All right. I didn't even, I wasn't even working professionally, but it was, it still gives me chills thinking about it. Yeah. Now, Graham unfortunately closed um very did sad you, did you work there right up till the end no no i was at uh i spent 10 years at at graham um and it was really i i, I left about a year and a half before uh graham closed the fi finally closed actually two years about two years before um and went off on a different adventure, which we can talk about if you want a little bit a little bit later. But anyway, um, it was really, really sad. Graham had um, a tremendous amount of real estate in Kenmore Square that required continual upgrades, like they had to replace the fire uh, suppression system in um, the hotel, in the old Kenmore Hotel, which I know is a tremendous expense would have been it was i'm sure when they did it and also what was happening at that time was that 
the federal government, which had given student loans, federally you know, insured or backed up uh, loans to two-year and accredited two-year and four-year colleges, had changed their policy to, I think if I'm correct about this, to uh, not no longer include two-year schools. Now that may have since changed, hopefully it has, but at that point, it really, really put Graham, which was a private two-year school, not community owned by, you know, a city or a municipality of any sort, it put them at a tremendous disadvantage. And so there was that, and there were the, the, the construction bills that they had and other things. This story has been told to me after the fact. I was not part of Graham at that point, um, but all of them conspired to put so much financial pressure on the school that um, they ended up closing it, which is really very, very sad. Graham himself, uh, Milton Graham, the, the founder and president of the school, and those that he brought in and surrounded himself with were high level. They were great people um, in the early going, most certainly. They had a vision, and I certainly was part of that vision and delighted to be, be so. The motto of the school was learn by doing, as you remember. Yep. And they placed very, very heavy emphasis on training people. So when they left the schools, this is the broadcast part that I can speak to now. I was not involved, obviously, in the other schools within Graham Junior College. There was a liberal arts, as I mentioned before, and secretarial issues and so forth, different, different um uh, different ones. But but anyway, the broadcast school, our idea was that when people got out of the school, they could get a job. They could go to a, into a network or whatever. In fact, we partnered, this is after you had graduated, and uh, several years later, we partnered with ABC, NBC, and CBS television, technically speaking, to have a program a two-year program that would train engineers for television who could repair, operate and repair video tape recorders, cameras, this sort of thing. Um, and it became incredibly successful. We were placing kids, uh, they would go as interns in the summertime to work at either ABC, CBS, or NBC in New York. And then at when they graduated, he picked up with full-time jobs. In fact, years later, I used to watch the news when they crawl at the end of the newscast, you know, you, you'd see who the camera people, they don't do that anymore, but um, you know, several years ago that they would run the crawl at the end and you'd see who the producers were, the camera people, the audio techs and so forth and so on. And I would see innumerably names of former students who had graduated from Graham who worked either at ABC, CBS or NBC. All right. You are a very creative gentleman as far as using a voice is concerned. You can talk about your brother, but I know some of the talent that you have as far as mimicry and voices. I'm going to mention a name and I'm going to let you tell a story about a gentleman named Merle Sweat. <laughs> uh. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, I'll I'll give you the background a little bit first. Yeah. Uh, in those days, after I had known you as a you know early as a student, I purchased some land in upstate Maine, in Howland, Maine, on the Milo Maxfield town line, and there was a fellow that I bought it from, an older Mainer. His name was Dan Buber, and one of the people involved in the transaction, his name was Merrill Sweat. However, the voice that I did was in fact the voice of Don Buba. And this is uh, pretty much how Don sounded. Uh, he was an old, old man. When I bought it, he was probably about, uh, well, he was younger than I am right now. I'm just almost 82. And uh, Dan was, uh, oh, I think it was about 70, 73 or so at the time. And Merrill, Merrill was a young youngster. He was he was only about sixty one, and uh, but he was he was a sharp sharp stick. Let me tell you, he he really was. And so Merrill uh, Merrill was a jokester. Uh, you know, he was uh, one of them fellows that you ask him, you remember last summer, Merrill? Oh sure, I remember it. Would come between Monday and Thursday, didn't it? You know that was Merrill's that was Merrill's sweat. You remember Merrill, don't you now, Ken? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but go ahead. There's there's more to the story. I know. No, you'll have to remind me. I can't. I can't remember well, you exactly a, where you're going with this. Somehow you did an editorial as Merle Sweat talking about the Boston baked beans. Oh. <laughs> uh, and it, and it, and it aired like a regular editorial. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I had forgotten that until you just reminded me. Um, now, was that done on EEI or was that done on a that, station that I worked at later on? No, that was done on EEI. There was a very professional announcer who introduced it. I don't know what he said. I remember how he did it, but he, but he mentioned the editorial on the Boston Baked Bean and you were Merle Sweat was a spokesman for it or something oh, to that effect. yeah for the bean council that's right yeah right it's, it comes back to me a little bit yeah i had okay i had joked around the using that voice i had joked around the station a lot and who the heck was it wasn't jim westover it might have been art smith i think it was i think it was the news director art smith who came up with the idea and said, um, I had been using the voice and stuff, and he, and maybe I had done something about the, the Bean Council, which didn't exist. There's no such thing as the Boston Baked Bean Council, you know, um, number 327 or something like that, whatever it was. And uh, he said, you know, let's do it. I'll interview you or something and let's do it. Let's do a thing. So it was a, it was an off the cuff. Uh, it was an off the cuff thing that, that we recorded. And I guess um, the PD and the program director and so forth decided that they would play it as an off the cuff uh, thing. And a lot of people thought it was real. They didn't realize <laughs> that it was a, <laughs> that it was a joke. 
um, I don't remember the kinds of things that I said, um, describing where the beans came from and how we process them and all of this sort of stuff. But uh, anyway, that's what you're making reference to. Right. Now, after you left Graham and after you left DEI, you still maintained or managed to stay in the business. As I recall, you owned a, a bunch of different radio stations. Well, uh, yeah, when I left, uh, when I left Graham, I went to work for a company called uh, Northeast Communications, which still exists. Um, they didn't have a, they didn't own a radio station when I went to work for them. This is kind of a quick sidebar story. Um, but uh, my, I, when I had worked before I ever uh, worked at EEI, I worked a couple of summers um, at Channel 7. Well, prior to Channel 7, although still was Channel 7, I worked on the radio side. WNAC was the AM station and WRKO was the FM. And I worked there, um, I don't know, two years, I guess, uh, different times as an engineer. And one of the guys that I became very friendly with was the then, he wasn't the news director then, he was one of the news people, uh, Roger Allen. And Roger and I became good friends. He later became the news director, became an instructor at Emerson, was there for, not Emerson, I'm sorry, at Curry College. He's got me the job at Curry, by the way, as the engineer. And I built their FM station. Um, there was a frequency available that would work there in Milton, Mass. Wouldn't work in the city of Boston, unfortunately, but it worked in Milton. So we were able to build an FM station for them uh, on the college campus. But anyway, Roger knew a person um, in Cleveland, Ohio, who knew the Fisher family um, and Jeff Fisher, who was um, had been in broad, was in broadcasting, in fact, in, in uh, Cleveland, uh, wanted to own a station. They wanted to, the family wanted to buy a radio station and they had settled on New England. I'm not sure why, I don't ever remember exactly. But anyway, they needed an engineer to evaluate the property they were looking at. And the property was WFTN, in then still is Tilton, New Hampshire, which is near Laconia, very, very close to Laconia, the lakes region of New Hampshire. And Roger called me, I was still at Graham at that point, um, ready to leave, I hadn't left yet, but was right in that same time period. And uh, Roger said, uh, you know, you wanna do this, it'll be a day's work, so I'll condense it down. I met the Fisher family, drove with them uh, up to Tilton, New Hampshire, I had owned a place I still do um, in Moultonboro, New Hampshire, not that far away. Um, and so I made a kind of a weekend out of it and saw the station. It was a 250 watt AM radio station. You couldn't get the thing at the end of your thumb. I mean, it was the signal was that bad. And uh, but they wanted to buy it. They made an offer. The guy who owned it did sell it to them. And uh, the Fisher family said to me, look, um, you know, we'd like you to, uh, to stay with us. And can you, I said, yeah, we could probably upgrade this thing to a thousand watts. And, you know, maybe we could even add an FM down the line. Who knows? Well, anyway, I became an owner, a part owner, small percentage owner of Northeast Communications. And we did, in fact, go on to make the station a thousand watt radio station, the AM, and then add an FM station to it. Uh, three or four years later, and then they went ahead and bought 
uh, WABK. I was with them then, and I, I had left Graham, and I went uh, with my family to Maine, to Gardner, Maine, uh, which is just outside of Augusta, where ABK is located, still there today. And um, it was a 5,000-watt AM radio station at 1280. And they also had an FM, 15,000-watt FM, which we upgraded to a 50,000-watt Class B FM. And uh, I spent 10 years there as the general manager, uh, and the station was quite successful. Um, I left that station. I left the Northeast group um, and went to and built a station on my own in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Actually, was licensed to Kittery, Maine, uh, WQMI 95.3, and ran that for three years and sold that uh, after three years. And coincidentally, uh, the uh, Northeast folks came looking for me, and I went back with them back up to Maine and ran ABK again, and then added three other stations to it, one a brand new one, and two we purchased, and uh, was there for another eight years until uh, Cumulus Communications came along and bought the group. And that was the end of my active management career in, uh, in broadcasting. I, I feel superfluous in almost asking this question, but you really enjoyed being an owner, didn't you? I did. It was fun. That was a kind of, in one way, kind of a culmination. I always wanted to own a radio station. And obviously, I never had the money to buy one outright. That was, that was never, in the, never in the cards. So the only way that I could ever do it is to find a frequency, go through the process with the FCC, um, and then build it and run it, which is what I did. But what really was extremely helpful uh, at the time, Kurt Gowdy had owned the AM radio station in Portsmouth for several years. He sold it to another family. They then sold it to a couple of guys that owned a station, WARE in Ware, Mass, out near Worcester. And they were running it as an oldie station. It's an AM, uh, didn't have a great, a great signal. Um, the the uh, studios and so forth were right just off of the rotary there in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Anyway, um, they, they were trying to sell the station. Now, this is right at the same time that I was building the new FM station, which was going to be licensed and was licensed to York, uh, I'm sorry, to to, yeah, to York, Maine, not Kittery, to York, Maine, which is just over the border in Maine. And um, this station came up for sale. The AM station, the former Kurt Gowdy station, came up for sale. Um, it had a building. It had studios. Uh, it had everything that I wanted that I would need. Um, and so I made an offer and bought it and petitioned the FCC to run the FM station from that location in Portsmouth so that what turned out to be a standalone AM that really couldn't survive on its own was coupled with an FM, a brand new FM. Uh, but I had a building, I had studios and everything for, for much less money than I would have ever been able to have to spend to create all of that to begin with. And that turned out to be, um, a heaven sent blessing because the station 
was then known as a Seacoast Port, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire based radio station, even though the FM transmitter uh, was just up the line in York, Maine. Of course, it had a tremendous signal throughout the whole uh, Seacoast area there. So it was very, very helpful to me. The station did very, very well with oldies. And um, I ended up then selling it three, uh, three years later to uh, another group and um, was on the beach, as they say, for a little while until I was contacted by the Northeast communications people to go back to Maine and to run the ABK. And that's when we added other stations to it. And over those eight and a half, almost nine years uh, later on, obviously was sold to the Cumulus Group. Now, I know earlier you talked about your brother and how he kind of influenced you into getting into radio. But before that happened, were you like me and were a radio nut and, and listened to radio all the time like yes. I did? Yes, I was. It's funny you ask. When I was in high school, I bought a tape recorder and I used to record um, voices. I record shows. I had one of the first FM tuners that the then Radio Shack uh, was very much in business back then. They're no longer, of course, but they were back then. And you could build it as a kit. Uh, it was you know, more or less put together, but you could do a few things to finish it off. And then you had to hook it. It didn't have its own amplifier. You had to hook it into an amplifier, but a tuner. And I had that uh, next to my bed where I lived in Quincy, Mass., in my parents' home. And I would listen to FM radio. There weren't a lot of FM stations then. I would actually listen to WHAV in Haverhill, uh, Haverhill, Mass. But the signal was good enough and strong enough. I had an antenna run outside the window and so forth. And uh, so, yes, I was always what one would call a radio junkie. So it kind of came naturally when uh, my brother, you know, did his thing. And I was able to piggyback on his coattails and become the engineer there. Uh, you know, and be paid maybe five bucks or something, whatever it was for lugging the equipment around and hooking it up, you know, but yeah, so I was always a radio junkie, much as you were. Now, still are. I, I, to a degree, um, yeah. but we have had many conversations about radio today. And uh, to sum it up, it ain't so hot, is it? No, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's a sadness, really, uh, for those of us who worked in radio when it was local and live and um, something that people wanted to listen to. Now it has bowed to the, the minions of Wall Street, so to speak, and it's pretty much satellite delivered now by subscription. And so one can you know, go across the country and listen to the same announcers, the same music on different stations, but it's being delivered by satellite so that the live component, um, the immediacy of what radio was um, has pretty much gone away. And it's, it, to me, it's a real sadness. All right. Looking back over your career, and I always ask this of people that have been in the business for a long time, what, what do you take away as maybe some of your fondest memories as far as the business and as far as teaching and in general, um, your whole career? Well, first of all, 
I, I'd have to say, Ken, that I thank God first and foremost for the challenges and the and the ability and the opportunities that I was given to work in the business uh, all the way through from um, the teachers that I had at Mass Radio. His name was Lou Jordan. He was a an absolute gift. Um, he was brilliant. He was in, uh, just a great radio guy. Um, taught me a great deal. Um, I'll never forget him. As you think of me, I think of Lou in that regard. Um, in fact, I had the honor of hiring Lou as an instructor late in his career. He was an engineer at that time at uh, Channel 38 in Boston, but still had been an exceptional teacher. Um, was not teaching at that particular moment, but I hired him uh, in one of our technical programs at Graham, um, preparing uh, guys to become engineers, to actually repair equipment and so forth and so on. Those That's the program that we're able to get kids, uh, young students directly into ABC, NBC, and CBS as technicians, as the four-year schools were not preparing them technically. They were preparing them in terms of in front of the camera, but not behind it and repairing it. We went that direction, had a technical program, um, and it was incredibly successful. And Lou ended up teaching as one of the instructors in that program. Um, so I've been blessed, purely, truly, absolutely blessed. Teaching at Graham was one of the highlights of my life, meeting you and others like yourself, other students who've gone on to do great things, many of them. One of them is... Uh, Director of Engineering of, of uh, NBC Olympics, still is, hasn't retired yet. Um, others went on to equal careers at Viacom and other places, have done very, very well. So that was great. Uh, running my own radio stations as manager over the years was terrific. I can truly say that um, I loved every minute of it. I really, really did. Um, they were challenging times, that's for sure. Um, especially in the early days with, with a number of hours and so forth. But uh, that's the way it was, and, and I loved it. Um, so overall, uh, radio and television, too, were fabulous for me. And Graham was certainly 10 of the, of the absolute most one, wonderful years I've ever had. Really, uh, you know, trying to, to, to give to the students. Anyone who teaches understands this. You get so much more back then you give. Well, I can remember when I used to work with you after classes, you'd work with me until 10 o'clock on a Friday night. Yeah. The one who <laughs> paid the, paid the price for that was my long suffering wife, Carol. God bless her for, for doing that, but she loved you and understood what was going on. So, but it was tough for her for sure. Yeah. We worked some, some crazy hours, but it was, uh, it was all good. You were the huh. first person ever, as an unsighted person, the first person in the United States to ever pass, as far as we know, the third class radio telephone license. Well, I'm sure if I hadn't had you as an engineer, I'd have probably flunked it. I think well, one of the reasons I passed it was because the guy who gave me the exam had to read it. And I think he felt sorry for me because I couldn't understand his thick Boston accent. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, he drew the meters on an Etch-a-Sketch pad, if you remember, that we brought yep. with us. Yep. You, had, you and I had worked on that so you could feel where the, where the needle was, whether it was 3,000 volts or 5,000 or whatever it was. And he would dry, draw the meters that were in the exam off of the paper. He'd draw them on the Etch-a-Sketch. You would feel it and you'd tell him, okay, that's 3,500 volts. So that's 20 amps or whatever it happened to be. And that's yep. how you were able to pass the test because you obviously had a great memory and um, you did wonderfully and you passed it all on your <laughs> own. It wasn't a gift. Yeah. You did it. So. But I was never so grateful for a man with a, to have a man with a thick accent. Cause I still, <laughs> I still say, I think that he felt sorry for me, but <laughs> I, I hope that you keep in touch with uh, some of your ex students besides myself um, anyone who has had the pleasure of knowing you and working with you is blessed as well. And um, I'm, I'm just grateful that things happened the way they did. I, I don't think they would have otherwise. And I'm sure there are others that will hear this broadcast and echo those sentiments as well. Uh, to quote what um, um, somebody on 60 Minutes said to Johnny Carson, you are a national treasure. Bless you. Thank you, Ken. This has been a delightful uh, 50 minutes or 55 minutes, whatever it's been or whatever it is. It's uh, it's terrific. And yeah, I do try to keep in touch with uh, a few of them um, who do check in from time to time like you do. Hello. Um, this has been very special indeed. Thank you for thinking of me, old friend. And that will do it for another edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.